Hello, everybody. This is Alien Talk Podcast, a program where we discuss all things about aliens and UFOs and where we push the limits of our understanding. We are Joe Landry and Lori Olford, your co-hosts, and we are glad to be here with you as we are back after a two-week hiatus. Uh, thank you all for joining us. And for those of you who may be tuning into our program for the first time, we'd like to give a big welcome to you. So, hey there, Lori. How are you doing? You know, it seems like it's been a lot longer than just two weeks since we last did this. Hey, Joe. Yeah, it does. And uh, it, it was a long two weeks, but it's uh, it's good to be back as always. And how are you doing? I'm doing well. Yeah, I mean, it, it has been pretty busy for me uh, as I just moved into a new house. And as you know, that is a lot of work. Uh, I'm still a little out of sorts after taking off a few days um, from the job to do all that. And, and now coming back to the podcast from a new house. Yeah, well. Uh, congratulations, by the way. Thank and, you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, moving into a new house is a whole lot of work. And uh, on top of that, a whole lot of stress. I mean, it is a real pain, no doubt. And I absolutely hate it. I uh, I did it just about a year ago. However, uh, I do have to say that once it's all done and you're fully moved in, uh, you do feel good about being in a new place. And, and it's all about getting into uh, a new routine. Oh yeah. yeah. My wife and I really like the house we bought and, and gradually we're getting everything unpacked and set up. So it will be nice. And it is definitely great to be back on the podcast and back to getting into some deep conversations. And today we're going to cover a subject that coincides with what we talked about last time, that being the mysteries of the ocean and the possibility of alien operations intrinsic with the long reported appearances of USOs or unidentified submersible objects. Right. And not only that, but we, we also looked at how the strange occurrences in the Bermuda Triangle may be related in some way, not only to an extraterrestrial presence, but also to the legends within our mythological traditions about lost continents like the ones of Atlantis, Lemuria, and Mew. Now, those uh, traditions in turn, like those of the gods, uh, seem to come from much older and more long-rooted ones that go back to when advanced civilizations from different worlds had at one time or another existed here on planet Earth. Now, that brings us to the particularly interesting myths of the Dogon tribe in the West African country of Mali, where uh, we find that some of the stories that have been passed down through the generations tell of a race of beings called the Nomos, uh, who came to her thousands of years ago from the Sirius star system. Yeah. Now for those uh, who have been following us for a while, this should sound familiar to the Sitchin theory of the Anunnaki and the Dogon people of West Africa have carried on an oral tradition that is remarkably similar to what the Nineveh tablets describe about the Sumerian creation myth that is found in the Enuma Elish. And just like the Anunnaki, the Nomos were gods who descended from the heavens only it is from Sirius B and not Nibiru that they come, uh, or as they call it, Sigi Tolo. Uh, they were referred to as monitors and teachers and masters of the water. And they taught humanity the knowledge of science, mathematics, writing, and art, as well as special wisdom comprising of things like magic, sorcery, alchemy, and soothsaying. Uh, this is similar to how the watchers of the Book of Enoch are depicted within the Western literary tradition. Yeah, in, in fact, their chief deity uh, even has a name that is similar sounding to that of Anu. It's uh, Ama, 
So the word nomos is uh, a verb that translates from closely to mean or most closely to mean uh, to make someone drink. And to the Dogon, uh, these beings were amphibious, uh, hermaphroditic, uh, and had the appearance of mermen and mermaids, uh, half fish and half human. Now, recall that in Babylonian and Sumerian mythology, Inkis, or Eos, symbol was that of a goat, a fish, or both combined together. And he is depicted on clay seals as having two streams of water gushing uh, onto his shoulders, supposedly representing the uh, Tigris and the Euphrates rivers, along with two trees, uh, supposedly uh, representing the male and female sides of nature. There's also the goddess Namu, uh, who is said to be the the one that gave birth to the gods and therefore is also the mother of Inki. So even with the Anunnaki, we find a close association between water, whether it be the rivers or the oceans, and the deities that come from the sky. And of course, the the same is with the, the, the Nomos. Yeah, and also the Egyptian goddess Isis is sometimes illustrated as aquatic with a mermaid-like image. And the star Sirius is said to be her astral representation. So again, we find uncanny parallels with all of the mythical constituents of water and the divine. Now, much of what we know about the Dogon beliefs has come from the research of the French anthropologist Marcel Gruel and Germain Dattelier, um, who in the 1940s uh, devoted a considerable amount of time learning what would be known as their secret cosmology. And they heard from the tribal shamans that long ago, the Nomos descended from the sky in a vessel accompanied by fire and thunder and then dived into a water reserve that they made uh, as they needed that uh, in in order to live. Yeah, they also told uh, that the the Nomos taught the Dogon people that they were from a world near the star Sirius, but not only that, but a companion to Sirius, later known as Sirius B., uh, it was called uh, Potolo, and it went went uh, around the, the other star, Emi Yatolo, uh, later known as uh, Sirius A. Now, it's important to realize that it wasn't until 1970 that astronomers acknowledged uh, Sirius is actually a binary star, and that there really is a Sirius B that does exist and orbits Sirius A. So the Dogon are believed to have known about this hundreds of years before the invention of telescopes. And, and uh, even with the uh, Sirius B not, not being visible to the naked eye. And as it is, Sirius is the brightest star in the night sky with a distance of 8.7 light years from Earth. And it was very signif- a very significant star to the ancient thinkers as they took note of its hylical rising every year right around July 19th. It is called a dog star because it is in the constellation Canis Major, and it is prominently positioned right alongside Orion, tangent to the belt. Uh, The helical rising of Sirius occurs when it starts to become visible above the eastern horizon just before sunrise. And this was important to the management of agricultural activities, especially in Egypt, Greece, Babylon, India, and China. It was uh, a particular relevance to the Egyptians as the helical rising of Sirius uh, corresponded to the annual flooding of the Nile River, which was extremely important to the proper farming practices back in antiquity. Yeah, it's also how the phrase the dog days of summer was originated. 
That's right. It's actually an astronomical meaning. Yeah. So now these uh, normal gods are supposed to have descended to Earth from Sirius in in something that was called an arc, and it was said to spin as it moved through the sky while making a loud noise and causing a great wind. Now, this should evoke the image from the book of Ezekiel, where the prophet has a vision in the sky of a uh, a wheel within a wheel that that made a loud noise and a rushing of wind. And, of course, images of Noah's Ark and of the Ark of Covenant also come to mind. Uh, so, again, we we continue to find these parallels within the, mytho- uh, the mythological as, as well as the scriptural traditions that seem to follow along the same themes of people witnessing incredible sights coming down from the heavens. Right, and we see the importance of the symbolism to be prevalent, and it seems to deliver the same message. Uh, It tells us about the gods dwelling in the sky, about how they arrive with fire and wind, uh, about how they instruct mankind in all matters of intellect. It also tells about how water gives a connection between them and all of humanity, and about how they save and preserve life on Earth from completely perishing in disasters, uh, natural ones or otherwise. And these ideas are fully integrated within our belief systems, and they portray the superiority of the gods over humans, whoever the gods may be. Of course, in the ancient astronaut theory, uh, the gods are extraterrestrial beings from other planets. So the Dogon mythology has quite a bit of a connection to the the biblical and the Middle Eastern traditions, as they, they claim that before their ancestors migrated, they lived in Egypt of whose pantheon was this descended from Akkad and Sumerian, uh, Inki being Ptah and Ra being Marduk, Inki's son. As such, the idea of the normal uh, could have easily fit right into the beliefs of the Dogon tribe as they would have heard the stories passed down and told over and over again from when they were in Egypt. Uh, uh, these would have been stories about ancient beings who splashed down into the Persian Gulf. And over time, the retelling of this account could have been uh, could have become corrupted into describing the beings as half fish and half human, or at least associated with fish. And this may have been because they were said to have been seen emerging from the waters. Uh, therefore, they would have been worshipped as fish gods, much like how angels are believed to have wings because they are associated with flight in, in the sky. Uh, This forms the cognitive association with picture words that people are so prone to revert to when they simply uh, lack the vocabulary or lexicon to describe something that they don't understand, and and that is done by applying words to them that they do understand. Likewise, we see a similarity in the names like with uh, the Nomo and Namu, who is the Sumerian mother goddess and mother of Inki. Uh, this is an example of a deviation from one word to another with the Dogon stories, like those of other cultures originating in the much older Sumerian stories. Yeah, also, besides being described as having fish-like characteristics, uh, they are also said to be serpentine and reptilian, which goes along the same lines as to how the Anunnaki are sometimes uh, characterized. Mm-hmm. And we know that Inki has been represented in various glyphs as being a snake. Uh, which is to say that he is the embodiment of wisdom. And this kind of zoomorphic illustration echoes back to what is found in the biblical narrative of the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Again, it's a picture word that conveys information from an oral source 
uh, that did not fit into the vocabulary at people's disposal at that time. Yeah, correct. And uh, according to an article on mastersofspeech.com by Shannon Dory, dated uh, September 16th, back in 2003, the uh, Dogon believed that there was no intelligent life on the earth when the Nomos first came here. Uh, their lore also suggests that the Nomos home world had been dying, which was why they came to Earth, so as to incorporate their consciousness into the Earth creatures that they made, uh, that of course being us. But strangely, they believe that there was a failure in the Nomos so-called experiment. Now, this is just like how with the Sumerians, Inky and his half-sister and in her sag, both science uh, scientist types, had created the Homo sapiens species, but only after several mistakes uh, were made that they uh, resulted in monsters being formed. Uh, only after being fine-tuned through rep- repetitious attempts was the uh, process re- refined enough for it to become a uh, success. Again, that you know that being us. And now there is some dispute among scholars as to the authenticity of the Dogon's model of the Sirius star system. Uh, There is a skeptical claim that they really did not have the insight to have such astronomical knowledge about it being a binary star, and that it was uh, confabulated by Western researchers. Uh, Carl Sagan and Ian Ridpath uh, presented their hypothesis to this aspect back in 1977 in a review on the book The Serious Mystery by Robert Temple. Now, they suggested that after various uh, American and European anthropologists had made contact with the Dogon in the 1930s and 1940s, that the subject of Sirius would have been thoroughly discussed as it was a very central part of their spiritualism. And the discoveries of modern astronomy could have then been shared with the shamans, who in turn integrated that new information with their old traditions. And then this newer version was then retold back to the researchers, and thus there, there was no original or actual Dogon knowledge about Sirius being a binary star. So in Temple's book, uh, he explains that the shamans made sand drawings to describe how Pol Tolo would go around Emiya Tolo every 50 years. It was not the Westerners who told them about Sirius, but the other way around. They even elaborated on how Sirius twinkles the way it does because we are seeing more than one star. And they could even accurately predict when Sirius becomes brighter due to Sirius B passing in front of Sirius A. But we must ask why Western anthropologists would bring up something like astronomy with with them in the first place. Well, would they not have been more interested in hearing the tribal elders relate the, the tales that are central to their culture, which would have included those about Sirius? Um, it is for this reason it became so important to Western scientists because the Dogon had detailed information uh, on record for over 400 years about the binary star, which was even depicted in artifacts that showed the orbits of Sirius B around Sirius A. But not only that, uh, but the Dogon were also aware for quite some time about planet Jupiter uh, having four primary moons and about the planet uh, Saturn having rings. Uh, These were all celestial facts uh, that were unknown to people until after the telescope 
was brought into use. Yet the Dogon claimed that they learned all about these things from the Nomos, which is also just like how the Sumerians claim as well. Exactly. And Sirius definitely does twinkle quite prominently in the night sky. If you ever uh, look at it, it is a very bright and very twinkly star. <laughs> Uh, so again, Laurie, this all sounds very familiar to what we find in Sitchin's work, which is the realization that ancient knowledge had been long preserved in people's oral histories, and that it entails facts that at, uh, at that time were yet to be formally discovered. Uh, so how did people know about them thousands of years ago when they should not have known about them? Uh, the ancient astronaut theory would purport that it was because of an advanced extraterrestrial presence that was on Earth far in a distant past, and had uh, passed on this information to the people. Uh, this, of course, becomes a part of mythology and has remained so until modern discoveries were made. And we get a glimpse into how people in antiquity perceived these stories that were told about this kind of advanced presence. And it is that they teach people all the things that make humanity progress into a civilization, uh, as well as mystical concepts that connect us to spiritual thinking and make us the religious species that we, we are. Now, we've talked about how the biblical angels are possibly tied to extraterrestrial encounters and more specifically about the beings identified in the Book of Enoch, known as the Watchers, are allusions to those fallen angels. And not only did they share what would be considered forbidden knowledge uh, to mankind, but they also engaged in sexual relations with human women which is a story in and of itself. So the Nomos are referred to by the Dogon as monitors, which sounds quite similar in meaning to that of watchers. And like the watchers of Enoch, the Nomos teach human beings things that are far beyond their normal comprehension. We'll be back after a quick break. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior, with your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. And now we must also look at the name Dogon because it too has a similarity with a pagan god in the Bible named Dagon, who was the father of Baal. Yeah, that is one uh, most well known to us from the account of Elijah and the prophets of Baal that is found in 1 Kings 18, 21 through 39. Yeah, he was the equivalent of the Sumerian god Enlil, Enki's half-brother. Now Enlil or Baal is also the equivalent to the Greek god Zeus and would later also be worshipped as Jupiter by the Romans. Therefore, the Phoenician uh, slash Canaanite god Dagon could very well be identified as being the same as the supreme deity An or Anu, uh, who is equivalent to the Greek god Kronos. Um, An, of course, or Anu, of course, is the uh, supreme god of Sumerians. Now, what's laughable, and you just had to shake your head at it, is how Christians are taught by many scripture commentators that Yahweh is the most powerful of all the gods because of what is said in 1 Samuel 5, 
uh, verses 1 through 5, that the idol of Dagon had fallen down uh, before him and had broken its hands off after the Ark of the Covenant was captured, and it was placed into the same room with it. So it says in the scripture verse, uh, let me see here, Um, then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. Now, if you continue to read further into the text, you'll see how they put him back up. And then the next morning, he is down again. But this time, his head and hands are broken off. Uh, If this story has any truth to it, and if there is any uh, syncretism with the Babylonian mythology, then the Bible has Yahweh despising his own father, or possibly his grandfather, because Yahweh was the same as either Inki or or Yutu Shamish. It gets even more confusing in that Yahweh may be equivalent to Enlil because he was such a disciplinarian who constantly wanted to punish the human race. Uh, this would make it such that Baal was the son of Dagon, and so was so was Yahweh. Um, and on that note, Enki, the god of wisdom, could just as well have been Yahweh. Uh, could also be he could also be identified as Satan, uh, because like the serpent that symbolizes him, he is crafty and calculating, just as he was in the Garden of Eden. Even though the Babylonian tradition actually has humanity being saved because of him. So we definitely have a major problem with these types of Bible stories and that there's a a good bit of uh, schizophrenia going on with the personalities of all these gods, whether it's Yahweh, Baal, Enlil, Enki. Uh, It's kind of hard to sometimes say where the equivalency lies and are they all the same or what are their differences? (laughs) Yeah, uh, schizophrenia, that's a a good uh, word. (laughs) well, I honestly believe that the the connection between Yahweh and Baal, as uh, as well as between Yahweh and Enlil and Yahweh and Zeus, as it fits well with the older source materials that originate from the periods when the Bible was written. So could the Nomos be the same aliens as the Anunnaki, or are they a different species altogether? Uh, could they be more like the reptilians? Um, and that's a difficult question to parse through, as we've seen that while the Anunnaki from Nibiru are supposed to look more like us, they have also been described as having uh, reptilian or amphibious characteristics. You know, yeah, it's uh, it's hard to say. Uh, as these descriptions may be a result of the ancient writers trying to convey something by which it lacked a proper lexicon to give more accurate scientific meanings. And if we truly were, and if we still are, visited by aliens, then a good possibility exists that there are various species of them from various planets. Uh, They're not just the ones that came from Nibiru. Uh, We mentioned on previous shows that there are the Nordics, or the Pleiadians, as they're sometimes called, from the Pleiades in Taurus. There are also the Greys, who are said to come from uh, Zeta Reticuli. Yeah, and and the Reticuli, or the uh... The reptilians from uh, Proxima Centauri or Arcturus or the constellation Draco. So, I mean, we do find a good bit of diversity among all of the traditions around the world about where these alien races uh, come from. 
And if there are indeed multiple alien species or races or civilizations that have been making contact with humanity for all of these thousands of years, then there is bound to be some overlap in the mythical narratives, uh, just as there is syncretism among people's beliefs about gods, which is a, a combining of, of the elements of one religion with another, uh, kind of like how we see some dogmas and rituals that are found in Christianity were borrowed from those that were at one time uh, pagan, like, and also like how you know Zeus and Jupiter and Enlil are mostly different names by different peoples, but for the same exact deity. Again, that kind of schizophrenia that you know we have there. You know which one is which, and are they all one and the same, or are they different? And surely there would be something similar taking place with how stories were told about entities who say originated from Nibiru and those who were from Sirius. Um, their characteristics and identifying factors uh, could have been combined with one another in their descriptions in various ways and in various fluid ways by different groups of people. Exactly. And like you've also said, Joe, uh, there seems to always be a connection with the similarities of gods between cultures and religions that are found in the teachings passed down from generation to generation. Now, not only are the Nomos of the Dogon much like the Watchers of the Book of Enoch, but they are also like the other deities and demigods found in other parts of the world. If we look at the Hopi uh, Indian tribe of northern Arizona, for an example, we find that they believe their gods came from a blue star called Kachina, which, as it would happen to be, is none other than the star Sirius. And get this, there are over 300 different Kachinas, which is significant because that's right around the number of the fallen angels in the book of Enoch that descended from the sky onto Mount Hermon to later associate with humans. Granted, it is more. Um, Enoch puts that number at 200, but it's also not extremely far off. I mean, 300, 200, uh, not you know, a big gap there. Um, that could just be you know, this different version of translation of a tradition. Uh, so we have a very close story of the Kachinas uh, as being like the Watchers. Uh, they have great power and are said to have descended to Earth and are said to have helped the Hopi um, by endowing them with wisdom and knowledge about things like agriculture, art, law, and government. The Kachinas are also said to have become physically acquainted with the women. And we all know that what that leads to. <laughs> Uh, hybridized offspring that are half human and half non-human. Yeah. Um, I believe there was, I think it was Sitchin that uh, one of his books had mentioned that it was a 300 Agigi. So, which that's probably where uh, it, it, it's all in close proximity to yeah. that number. Yeah. But uh, yeah. And, and they believe that there is a sacred mountain that is, uh, that is where the uh, Kachinos reside because it's where all the large beings are honored. Large beings on a mountain, well, that, that sounds just like the Nephilim in the Bible and also like the Cyclops in uh, Greek mythology. Uh, there are also 12 Hopi villages today. So there's that number 12 again that keeps popping up. Uh, they even have the same story about the Great Deluge thousands of years ago and about how the races of the world that split off afterwards to the north, which is the white-skinned, the east, the yellow-skinned, the west, black-skinned, and the south, red-skinned. So um, this is very similar to what it, it says in Genesis about the descendants of Noah's sons 
you know, when they spread out after ex- exiting the, the Ark, uh, the, the Hopi also believe in something known as the Day of Purification when they get to fly to other planets inside of domed ships that can fly without wings. <laughs> so the, the question must be raised as to how their oral tradition of water gods came about. Um, now the Dogon tribe could have had contact with the Anunnaki, who may also be the same be the same time as the uh, as the normals, just uh, as well as any other people did back in ancient times. Uh, however, their tradition puts the gods to be more closely associated with the ocean that we find in Sumer, Egypt, and Greece. And we have to wonder if there isn't a mythological link to something like Atlantis. Right. We've pointed out before that the homeland of the Dogon in Mali is due south of the Atlas mountain range. Uh, Atlas was the son of Poseidon, and according to Plato, he was the first king of Atlantis. And there are some who think that the mountain range has been given his namesake due to it running through Morocco near the Strait of Gibraltar, which is thought to be the legendary Pillars of Hercules. Now, this association of the name of the mountain range after the king of Atlantis with its location has been suggested by 19th century historian Antoine Lempierre to be a clue to the actual existence of Atlantis. So could the Dogon with their ancestral land being so close to where there may have been an Atlantean presence in the past, could that be a possible reason that their stories of Nomos have them as water dwellers? Uh, could the Nomos be the same as the Atlanteans, through which the cultural memory of them was carried on through the oral traditions of the Dogon for many generations long after the continent had disappeared into the sea? Yeah, and, you know, that Poseidon, uh, that we're talking about equivalent uh, to other gods, uh, Inki uh, is known to be the king of the abyss uh, or the Absu, right? Uh, so he is also the equivalent to Poseidon. So uh, yeah, it it that, that makes a lot of sense, and also the uh, etymological similarities with the Dogon, the Dagon dragon, and the Chinese dragon, which is an amphibious creature. Uh, we, we mentioned before in uh, previous episodes that uh, you know mythical uh, beasts are found in religious and scriptural sources, and that. Uh, they be nothing more than uh, descriptions of what the ancient people would have misunderstood from witnessing advanced technology, like uh, sophisticated flight and submersible systems. Uh, these could be nothing more than stories of prehistoric accounts in which UFOs and USOs were seen by people who had no other way of explaining them uh, other uh, than to call them dragons. Uh, perhaps there is even a connection between them and the belief that some of them may have come from the constellation Draco. So does the very name of the tribe Dogon reflect this kind of encounter by this group of people, which surely could have had a profound enough uh, experience for all of them, and, and so as to impress upon them the inclination to call themselves by that name? It could very well be. Um, even when we look at the Japanese culture, we find something called the Dogu, which uh, are the many figurines that were found dating back tens of thousands of years to the Jomon time, known as the, the Shekoki Dogu. Uh, the name Shekoki means uh, light blocking device or goggle eyed, 
which is what we see when you're looking at some of these ancient figurines. I mean, they they look like spacesuits of some sort, and the dogu, um, they're also associated with fertility, which is the uh, the goddess Isis slash Ishtar. Uh, she's often associated with. Uh, you mentioned that earlier. Um, even the word dragon is meant to depict an amphibious creature, uh, one that can live in and out of water. And in China, a, a dragon is a creature that swims in seas, lakes, and rivers, but <clears throat> it also takes to the skies uh, to fly. And if you guys have time, you might, might want to check a, our episode out about the uh, the dragons. It's it's uh, it's, it's pretty good. Right, they're said to be able to uh, transition between flying in the air and uh, flying underwater, much like how USOs uh, are, are often said to be seen. They, they can go back and forth between flight in the air and flight underwater. Right, that's a good point, Joe. So, yeah, there could be a connection with the words dragon, dogon, dogu, and dagon, because they all seem to have similarities with fish or uh, amphibious characteristics. So the the star... Sirius is also known as Alpha Canis Majorius, uh, a.k.a. the dark star, and it does appear to be a bluish-white star, which is why it is called the Blue Kachina uh, by the Hopi. Uh, we should also be, what should also be noted here is that the uh, alien beings or gods of the Dogon tribe would have been from a planet of Sirius B, uh, with Sirius B, uh, maybe even Sirius A as well, being its son. So you have to wonder what the plant, that planet would be like if there was, or if there was more than one planet which uh, the species inhabited. So Sirius B was discovered by a telescope maker named Alvin Clark and is now determined to be the same size as our own sun, and uh, it is a white dwarf. Uh, I like how Robin Olson, in an article with uh, owlcation.com, is dated back December 15. 2021, it's not that long ago, he explains that the uh, system is around 300 million years old and that Sirius A has a habitable zone uh, somewhere between two and five astronomical units uh, from it. So, which means that uh, planets may be in some type of Goldilocks zone, much like the one we have here in our solar system. Uh, If that's the case, then the Nomos may be from a planet in that particular zone. Of course, such a planet would need plenty of liquid water like, like ours True. and a, a very protective atmosphere with oxygenated air also like ours. Mm-hmm. However, uh, in 300 million years is not a very long time for a planet to form. Uh, if there was a planet in that system, it seems like it would have to be a, a pretty young one. Yeah, and, and Olsen continued to say that if it existed, it would have you know warm shallow oceans or shallow oceans and in a very thick, humid, and cloudy atmosphere with a bright sun shooting out ultraviolet rays of light. Now, if you look up the ideal climate for reptiles, the best habitats habitats are temperatures around 70 to 85 degrees Fahrenheit and basking temperatures over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. They also like high levels of humidity and need vitamin D3 that is produced from exposure to ultraviolet light. So I'm guessing that since a planet like this would be fairly young, then what if the Anunnaki looking for a new world on which to live as Nibiru had maybe become uh, uninhabitable 
had transferred their civilization to this planet orbiting Sirius B, and this is why we get such the uh, similarities. Right. The Sirius B system may now just be their new home, uh, having abandoned Nibiru a, a long time ago. Uh, after all, the Sumerian mythology tells of it being on the brink of environmental disaster hundreds of thousands of years ago. So if it was in trouble even way back then, it could have eventually become too toxic to support Anunnaki life. And since they are often described as amphibious, especially by the Dogon tribe, then this would make perfect sense for them to dwell on a planet more suitable for them. Uh, even with their solar system being eight light years away from ours, they may now have developed the technology to enable themselves to travel in such a way, come and go more frequently, which means that uh, they may be arriving back on Earth even sooner than we expect. So we're left wondering what, if any, relationship there is between our oceans and the extraterrestrial races that may have visited us both in a distant past as well as in recent times. Certainly the uncanny disappearances of ships and airplanes in the Bermuda Triangle, the strange sightings of USOs that have been reported around the world for centuries, and legends of entire civilized continents like Atlantis uh, being submerged into the dark depths, uh, they have impressed upon us the possibility of an alien connection with the mysteries of the sea. And I, I don't think we can ignore that uh, there is some connection, even though we don't know what exactly that connection may be. But if nothing else, we can plainly gather from the legends and the myths of the gods that they have full reign of everything, not only of what, uh, of what is high up in the, uh, in the heavens, but what is far below in the ocean. Indeed, even the Bible depicts God as omnipresent in that very way. And just as it says in the book of Psalms, that the heavens declare the glory of the Lord and his voice is upon the waters. So that wraps up our show for today. Uh, for next episode, which will be in two weeks, the Foo Fighters, not the music group, but uh, the bogeys uh, or, uh, or what combat pilots would have called uh, tic-tac UFOs back during World War II. Yes, the uh, word Foo Fighter was uh, sort of a gibberish thing that the American military aviators coined to describe what they encountered during their missions, both over Europe and over the Pacific. The, they claimed that they were extremely fast-moving balls of glowing light that would zip around them in, in their propeller-driven aircraft of the time, or, or else closely follow them the entire time they were flying. And they weren't usually said to be very menacing, but they were definitely perplexing. So we'll get into that topic next time, and we think it will show that the buzzword that our government is now referring to as UAPs or unidentified aerial phenomena is really nothing new at all. Yeah, and, and from what I can tell from uh, reading about the Foo Fighters is that they are the same things that were seen on the now famous 2004 video footage from the USS Nimitz. So that should be a very interesting episode. Definitely. So we want to thank you all for listening in today. Uh, we're glad to have you with us, and we hope you all join us again in two weeks. Until then, stay curious. Yeah, thanks again, everyone, for being a part of Alien Talk Podcast. It's always a pleasure to reach out and share our discussions with all of you, and we're really grateful that you chose to tune in. So uh, please join us again next time, two weeks from now, as we continue to explore and push the limits of our understanding. Take care.